the only supplements that have worked. Check out this review on skin, hair, and nails from Heart and Soil from uh, Sandia K. I have tried biotin and several supplements for hair throughout the years, but none of them worked. These supplements worked beautifully well in making my hair longer, voluminous, and healthy. Of course, my skin looks great as well. They have quick, quickly replaced my multivitamin as well. If you are looking for a magic pill worth every penny, I freaking love it. I love it. I cannot claim that anything from Heart and Soil is a magic pill, but uh, skin, hair, and nails with the special collagen from trachea and scapula, liver and bone marrow is about as close as you're going to get. Certainly will improve the quality of your skin and your hair and your nails and might just make you feel great overall. It's an amazing one. And check out this review from Amy C., a woman who says, this is a great supplement. Since starting whole package, I feel more energy throughout the day, more mental clarity, and more blood flow in the well, you know where the blood flows. I, I love this review because we've had lots of reviews that I've shared uh, on the podcast from men who have found improvements in sexual health and blood flow into their sexual organs. But this is a woman saying that she feels better overall with the supplement, which is not surprising. And she has also had benefits in libido and sexual performance. So check these two out, guys. Whole package and skin, hair, and nails from Heart and Soil. You guys know this is my company uh, that I built that I'm very proud of. We make grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised organs that are freeze-dried to preserve the nutrients. They're packaged in glass bottles. The highest quality desiccated organ supplements on the planet. They look really cool too. The label's amazing. And uh, you can find them at heartandsoil.co. You can also join us at heartandsoil.co this January for the Animal Based 30 com is the website. It's free, tons of resources, eBooks, all sorts of good things there for you guys. So reclaim your birthright to radical health. That's what we do at Heart and Soil. Check us out, guys. I think you will really appreciate it. On this week's podcast, I did something I haven't done before. I did a solo cast. I've done solo cast before, but this solo cast was specifically me recapping the highlights. This is the sports center of Paul's Fundamental Health Podcast for 2021. These are the highlights. I get through all of it and I recap much of it. I do high level. I do philosophical stuff. I do some technical stuff with studies. But if you listen to part of my podcast this year, you'll probably hear some highlights that you listen to, maybe some episodes you missed that you'll want to go back to and not miss uh, from 2021. But I recapped most of it in this highlight podcast. So if you like this podcast, please help me have it reach more people because that's very meaningful to me by leaving me a review at Apple Podcasts. There's almost 2,000 reviews there. There's a 4.8 star average. I'm really blessed and grateful to get to do this. This is one of my favorite things. I love podcasting. I love having a voice and having a platform to do this. And this is how we reach more people. So thank you for leaving me a review at Apple Podcasts. As a thank you to you guys who do that, I will give away one free signed copy of my book every month to a person who leaves me a review at Apple Podcasts. This podcast is free and the sponsors make it so. So these are all sponsors that I really appreciate and I hope you will check out the things they do uh, and they all do good in the world, I believe. And that is why I have allowed them to be sponsored this podcast. They are carefully selected. First, I want to give a shout out to my friends at White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. You know them, grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised meat and organs, suet, animal fat, you can use the code CarnivoreMD there for 10% off your first order. They are a sixth generation, 125 years in the family, 25 plus years regenerative farming there. 
Bluffton, Georgia is the mothership. The meat is amazing. This is the way you vote with your dollars for the type of future that many of us want to see. This is ecosystems-based agriculture. The grass is green. The birds are happy. The bugs are flying everywhere. It is an amazing, amazing space. Check them out. Support them. You will not be disappointed. White Oak is amazing, and they are good people doing very good things. Also, want to give a shout out to my friends at Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Andy Mant, the CEO of Blue Blocks, was on the podcast this past year. We talked about light, why you shouldn't wear sunglasses, the importance of circadian rhythms, all kinds of interesting things. And when I am traveling, like I have been doing the last week, it's always hard to be in these funny light environments, which is why I appreciate Blue Blocking glasses from Blue Blocks. They make the best ones that I've ever seen. They're the highest quality. They have clear lenses and orange lenses, and they also have a light blocking mask at night. Uh, and that is very comfortable. I wear that at night when I sleep. They have all kinds of stuff that I have in my house. I have red light bulbs from Blue Blocks, and they are coming out in the new year with all sorts of new EMF-reducing devices. So check them out, blueblocks.com. You can order blue-blocking glasses, all kinds of good stuff there, lights for your home, sleep masks. They have a red light device, and they are coming out with EMF-blocking devices, specifically, I believe, uh, a laptop uh, pad, which will prevent you from cooking your good stuff when your laptop is on your lap. Super important and um, some EMF, low EMF headphones. I think everybody's going anti-AirPods these days. Uh, people are starting to realize how much radiation is coming out of those things. So I've never been a fan myself. But check them out, blueblocks.com. Use the code CarnivoreMD for 15% off your order there. Also got to give a shout out to my buddy Monsel and his hunting company, sacredhunting.com. He does so much more than just hunting. You will learn the basics about a track, stock, kill, and field dress wild game animals, but Sacred hunting adds ritual and Native American components that make it a real rite of passage. I hunted with Monsell in January of 2020. So man, almost two years ago. Crazy. Kyle Kingsbury came on that hunt. I shot a deer with my bow. I got to share the meat that we all uh, hunted over the fire with my friends. It was an amazing experience. It's bonding. You are on the land. This is the way to start your hunting experience if you are not familiar with what hunting is about. This will not disappoint. Um, Fundamental Health listeners will save 250 bucks on their trip by mentioning my name. There are two dates specifically sent up for set up for my followers, February 21st to 23rd, 2022, and May 20, 20th to 22nd, 2022. Um, there's five spots on each hunt, so visit sacredhunting.com for slash Paul. Fill out the two-minute application, set up an exploratory call. You'll love it. You'll have a great experience. Uh, sacredhunting.com front, front slash Paul. We'll get you there. Talk to Monsell. He's a good human. Uh, last but not least, Let's Get Checked. They are found at trylgc.com uh, front slash Paul. And what do they do? They allow you to do testing at home. You can get blood work at home. I got to check and see if they have fasting insulin. That is when I harp on. If they do, do that. If they don't, they should. And I will work with them to get it but you can get all kinds of stuff. Perhaps the most important would be your male hormones. You guys know that male hormones are declining a ton in the last 40 years, probably due to xenoestrogens, something I talk about in this podcast briefly and in my uh, bullshit series, but all sorts of things are creating drops in testosterone and sperm quality and libido and sexual performance for males. And you gotta know what your testosterone is if you're gonna correct this. And do not be, do not be so fast to get uh, hormone replacement until you correct the other things. I talk about that in this podcast as well. Ways to tank your testosterone include uh, low saturated fat and high fiber diets, as you will hear, but you got to know what it is first. So how does it work? You go to 
trylgc.com front slash Paul. You choose your test online. It will deliver to you next day delivery in discreet packaging. You collect your sample at home. It's pretty easy. You send it back in a prepaid envelope. The sample arrives in the lab. You get results available in two to five days. They're reviewed by a physician and you are contacted by a nurse to review the results. There are five hormone levels, testosterone, SHBG, prolactin, estrogen, and free energy index if you do the male hormones. And uh, I found it very easy. I got my lipids checked. I got my omega-3 fatty acids checked. I had CRP checked, and it was great to do it at home. Super easy. They are CLIA approved, highest level of accreditation. Uh, all testing is completely anonymized. So go to trylgc.com, front slash Paul. Trylgc, T-R-Y-L-G-C.com, slash Paul, P-A-U-L. Get 20% off. Obviously, this podcast has been sponsored by Let's Get Checked. I appreciate them and the democratization of testing because as you guys will hear in this podcast, a lot of times doctors won't even do the test that you want them to do. So that's why I appreciate having them in the podcast sponsorship tribe. All right, guys, on to the podcast with me talking about my highlights from this year. Hope you enjoyed this one. If you hate it, let me know. I won't ever do it again. If you like it, I'll do it again at the end of 2022. Stay radical. What is up, truth seekers? What is up, rememberers? I thought for the last, the final podcast of 2021, I would do a recap. I would do a highlight reel of this year's podcast. Many of you may watch Sports Center, many of you may not watch Sports Center, but growing up, I was a big fan of baseball. My dad and I collected baseball cards. I had a lot of Frank Thomas rookie cards. And SportsCenter was one of my favorite things. So SportsCenter, for those who don't know, is a program on ESPN where they recount all of the highlights of the day. But let's do the highlights of the year from the Fundamental Health Podcast. This will be a solo cast that I am recording in Austin, Texas on my way back to Costa Rica. Hopefully it goes okay. We'll see. It's a little bit off the cuff. I don't want to make this too onerous. I'm going to use my favorite podcast from the year in this one. And um, that doesn't mean that the ones I leave out were not amazing, just that these are the ones that stick out for me. And maybe I can prevent present some sort of a coherent ideological paradigm to you guys and the things that I have learned over this past year. I very much look forward to next year. In case you guys missed in the introduction of this podcast, we are doing an animal-based 30, which is a free animal-based challenge at Hardened Soil Supplements starting January the 1st. So sometime around near when you hear this podcast, you can go to Animal Base 30. I hope you will join us. You guys all know I am a huge fan of carnivore-ish, aka animal-based diets. We will be referring to many of the concepts behind those diets in this Highlight Sports Center podcast today. But you can join this 30-day animal-based challenge to start your year off right for free. We got a free ebook for you, a free infographic. There's support with a team at Heart and Soil and uh, at the end, we're going to give away a bunch of stuff, discounts on our supplements, free supplements. We're going to partner with Force of Nature Meats. My friend Robbie Sansom, who was on the podcast this year, is the CEO of Force of Nature. They are doing amazing work in the regenerative agriculture space. So that is the plug for Animal Base 30. I hope you will join us. As I said, it is free. The last couple of times we've done this, over 10,000 people have joined and many people have made massive, massive changes in their life. Uh, now is the time to do it. So join us for that, animalbase30.com. 
without further ado, on to my highlights from this year's podcasts. My first podcast from 2021 is already one of the highlights. From January the 4th, I did a podcast with Lucy Mailing. She's a PhD and has worked a lot on the microbiome. One of the biggest questions I get about carnivore-ish, carnivore and animal-based diets is, what about my microbiome? What about my poop? This is the podcast for you if you want to dig into that. Here are some highlights from that podcast in my perspective, from my perspective. One of the cool things we talked about was the pervasive bias in nutritional research. She actually discussed a paper that she published with my friend Tommy Wood, who's been on the podcast multiple times in the past, and there is bias in research. Generally, findings that go against the norm are not encouraged and are not often reported in the same way that findings that corroborate the prevailing narrative, the current zeitgeist, are. We've seen this with COVID. Can't make too many comments about that without getting censored on YouTube. A lot to dig into there. Um, you can always find my uncensored thoughts on things at the newsletter, which you can sign up for at heartandsoil.co, guys, if you want that. We've realized, basically, I've realized that I cannot speak freely anymore on any of my social media platforms. Many of you know that my Instagram was deleted for talking about COVID. So we're back. We're playing by the rules, but there's a lot more beneath the surface that I think many people need to know about. One of the things you need to know about is that there's pervasive bias in research. Lucy has done a lot of research into ketogenic diets and the gut and found that, in fact, ketogenic diets can be very good for the gut. Now, these are diets that are going to be low in carbohydrates and therefore low in many of the fermentable fibers that so many people are so excited about. So we talk about butyrate, which is the short-chain fatty acid that is produced in the large intestine in response to the fermentation of plant fiber. But there are many other short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, including isobutyrate, acetate, propionate, valerate, which can also be used by the colonic epithelial cells for fuel. So if you are worried about lowering your fiber and butyrate and short-chain fatty acids, I think that is false. And you should not worry about that. We dig into all of that in this podcast with Lucy Mailing. The other thing we touched upon in this podcast, which, what I, which I thought was fascinating, was research dealing with the Hadza, this group of hunter-gatherers that I visited in Tanzania this year. And what the researchers discovered when they looked at the Hadza microbiome was that they don't even have bifidobacteria. That the Hadza do go into ketosis from time to time, probably because they are hunting and not all their hunts are successful. They don't possess one of the bacteria that we believe to be so helpful for humans, how can this be when the Hadza don't really have inflammatory bowel disease, don't have irritable bowel syndrome, don't have GI issues in general? It points to the fact that our understanding of what a quote-unquote healthy microbiome is very limited. <laughs> and there are many ways to get a healthy microbiome. One of the adages I like is that if you have a healthy gut, that is, if you do not have gas or bloating or constipation, if you have well-formed bowel movements every day, then you probably have a healthy gut microbiome. If you have a healthy gut, if you have a healthy life, you probably have a healthy gut microbiome. I should also extend that set of um, disqualifying symptoms or qualifying symptoms to include things like good mood. As you'll hear later in this podcast, maybe good hair growth on your head and other places can be connected with a healthy gut microbiome and improved skin issues or lack of skin issues like eczema, things like this. These are all indicators of a healthy gut microbiome. If you are a healthy, thriving individual, and you have regular bowel movements, you probably have a healthy gut microbiome. Basically, no matter what you are doing in your diet. So don't get too worried about lowering your fiber. As many of you know, I did a strictly carnivorous diet, that is a zero fiber diet, for over a year and a half when I first began this foray into the realm of health adventuring and thinking deeply about what the roots of chronic disease are. 
And after a year and a half, I ended up with some pretty significant side effects, ketogenic side effects, significantly um, altered electrolyte balance leading to cramping in my muscles whenever I would do anything that required significant tensing those muscles, often got cramps when I was surfing in cold water, climbing with pointing of my toes, et cetera. Any prolonged tensing of the muscles led to cramping. I had muscle palpitation. I had muscle fasciculations, essentially, although that's technically not the right word from a neurological perspective, but you guys get it. I had muscle um, rippling in some sense, and I had palpitations of my heart at night. I lowered tes- My testosterone was lowered, and I had uh, disturbed sleep. So I included carbohydrates in my diet after that point. You guys have heard that story many times, but the short version is that I included the least toxic plant foods to start, fruit, honey, those type of things, and have been feeling much better and really, really appreciating the balance of least toxic carbohydrates in my diet since that time over two years ago. As I talked about uh, with Kara Collier, uh, I'll touch on this podcast again later uh, in this mini Sports Center highlight podcast, but I'm previewing the fact that I talked about this with Kara Collier from NutriSense. I've worn many continuous glucose monitors and um, with those and fasting insulin measurements proven that my metabolic health remains essentially exemplary, low area under the curve uh, of my glucose curves, wearing a continuous glucose monitor. If you don't know what that one is, uh, go to the podcast with Kara Collier. Again, I will highlight that one a little bit later in this podcast. And low fasting insulin levels. I tweeted something recently, which I cannot emphasize enough. I believe strongly that a fasting insulin laboratory measurement taken on every individual in this country would change the face of chronic disease, given that doctors knew how to interpret this and what to do to change someone's metabolic health for the positive. How do we interpret a fasting insulin? A fasting insulin should be less than five micro IU per ml. Mine have been three uh, micro IU per ml with a C-peptide, which is a fragment of insulin uh, that was less than 0.5, I believe, if I'm recalling that correctly. So what to do if your fasting insulin is above five micro IU per ml? First steps, eliminate seed oils. That is the next thing I will talk about here in a moment to highlight the podcast with Chris Kenobi. Uh, I always joke about this. I just can't say his name without referencing Star Wars. I'm sorry, guys. I apologize. Um, He's never seen the Star Wars trilogy, the original ones, the only good ones. And you should eliminate those seed oils, something I talked about with Chris Kenobi and Tucker Goodrich this year. I will, again, highlight that in a moment. And you should eliminate processed sugars. Another nuance that I really dove into this year on the podcast was the difference between Removing foods or nutrients or macronutrients, specifically carbohydrates, specifically simple sugars like fructose and glucose from the food matrix. You'll hear about a podcast later with Stefan Van Vliet in which we talk about the importance of the food matrix. And I will highlight differences in the performance or the physiologic response of the human body to molecules like fructose when they are in a food matrix versus out of a food matrix. What do I mean by that? I mean that When you process, which is a word that is fraught with many um, philosophical problems, but you all understand what I mean by that. When you process a food, when you strip the nutrients from a food, you often adulterate those nutrients, you destroy those nutrients, you oxidize fats, and you remove many of the, I would say, informational components of a food matrix, leaving only fructose or glucose. And we know pretty darn clearly that when you give people lots of fructose or glucose, In isolation, negative things happen in the human body with both of those molecules, not just fructose, though it gets demonized more. But when you give people fructose in the context of a food matrix that is whole, different things happen in the human body, which are 
generally positive. This is something I've talked about with honey and I will highlight later with red, orange juice, et cetera, and endothelial response. This is all to say that if your fasting insulin is above five micro IU per ml, how you fix that? is you eliminate seed oils. That is corn, canola, safflower, sunflower, soybean, etc., grapeseed, all of those seed oils. If it comes from a seed, don't eat it. <laughs> Look at your labels. I was recently home with my family, my beloved family, who sometimes they do really well overall. And at Christmas, they brought out a lot of foods with seed oils and it was hard for me to see. But I, I love them regardless and I know that they are trying their best. Remove seed oils from your foods. Read the labels. Again, I will talk about the mechanisms regarding seed oils in a moment, highlighting Chris Kenobi and Tucker Goodrich's podcast. Remove processed sugars, but do not fear sugars in the food matrix. That is sugars that are found in fruits or organic raw honey. Those are fine in my opinion. I'm not as much a fan of maple syrup. I get asked that a lot because it is heated. And one of the things we know from honey, I did a controversial thoughts this year, which is a solo podcast in which I talked about research looking at nitric oxide derivatives in honey, precursors in honey. And we know that the more that honey is processed and heated, the less those nitric oxide precursors are uh, around, are testable, are uh, able to be isolated, and the less of a response that honey seems to have on the endothelium of human blood vessels. So heating maple syrup to me, it's not a good thing. I'm not as much of a fan of maple syrup, though it often gets lumped into the thing with honey. I think they are completely different. Honey is often raw, that is not heated and unprocessed. So think about that when you are thinking about sugars, quote unquote sugars, whole food matrix, different than processed sugars. Eliminating seed oils and processed sugars will improve your fasting insulin. I was talking to my dad about fasting insulin on the porch of our house in Vienna, Virginia, where I grew up. And he said, I thought that uh, it would be super expensive. What code could my doctor use to get that paid for? And I said, anything, hyperlipidemia, you could use prediabetes, you could use obesity. There are so many insurance codes your doctors could use to get a fasting insulin test paid for by insurance. And if you can pay cash, it's probably $35. I've checked on this, guys. That fasting insulin is less than a night out to a dinner at Outback Steakhouse, which probably has a lot of seed oils in their food. Anyway, definitely don't get the Bloomin' Onion at Outback Steakhouse. You get where I'm coming from. I posted about this fasting insulin metric. I actually talked to Bear Grylls about this. I was on his podcast. Hopefully that'll be coming out soon. We did a little uh, a little ditty about fasting insulin and uh, animal-based diets from mine and Bear's perspective. And um, when I posted about fasting insulin, many people said in the comments, their doctors call it academic or they say they only use that in people who are diabetic. And this is the problem. We have a collection, <laughs> a, an army of well-intentioned, intelligent physicians who have been miseducated in this country, in the United States, and they need to be re-educated, in my opinion. A $35 test, which your physician should be willing to order for you, you should be able to pay out of pocket for this. Maybe we can use the nonprofit that I am building <laughs> to fund some of these. Uh, more on that later. Um, but we should be doing that test on people and it will change the perspective as long as you know how to treat it and how to change your metabolic health once that test has been done. So in addition to that, I think you could eat an animal-based diet. That is meat and organs are the center of your diet. You guys know this, but I'll say it for anyone that doesn't. Organs and meat have been at the center of our diets for millions of years. This is the way the Hadza eat their food. I went to visit the Hadza with my friend Anthony Gustin this year. We went to Tanzania for two weeks. We hunted with them on a daily basis. We both got sick from eating berries. 
don't eat the berries in Tanzania at Lake Yasi or know what you're doing. We both got massive diarrhea, but we got to hunt with them. We got to eat organs with them. The Hadza eat from nose to tail. This is why I built hardened soil. This is my, one of my major passions is getting people the knowledge that they need organs in their diet. So eating organs in your diet will improve your health hands down. No question. Eating well-raised meat from companies like Force of Nature. I had Robbie on the podcast this year, White Oak Pastures, sponsors of the, of the podcast, et cetera, will be a vote for sustainability, ecosystems, as you will hear in the podcast with Diana Rogers, which was the end of this year, in fact, last week. And that will nourish you and your family properly. Add to that the least toxic plant foods. I've talked about this just a moment ago. Things like fruit and honey are great. And this year, I also added raw dairy back to my diet, something that had been a problem for me for many years, actually. But whether my gut was healing or I was only doing exclusively raw dairy, something is different now. My eczema has not flared with raw dairy. I feel better. And as I learned in the podcast, or as I was reminded of in the podcast with Sally Norton from this year on oxalates, it is important to have calcium in your gut. That is, it is important to have calcium in your digestive tract. It prevents the absorption of oxalates that may be in your diet, though most of the foods I recommend on an animal-based diet, aka hashtag carnivore-ish type diet, the type of diet that we are doing for the animal-based 30 com at Heart and Soil this year uh, are very low in oxalate. There are a few that may be higher, like kiwis, but if you scoop the seeds out, as I talked about with Sally Norton, you can eliminate the oxalates, which tend to concentrate around the kiwi seeds. Some fruit are a little bit higher in oxalates than others, red raspberries, black raspberries, etc. But generally, foods on a carnivore-ish, aka animal-based diet, are very low in oxalates. Even having said that, having calcium in your gut will help to prevent the absorption of those oxalates, which we know get deposited throughout the human body. And there are a few anecdotal cases of people stopping oxalates and getting calcium oxalate kidney stones from oxalate dumping. These are individual cases. I'll go into more detail about that later when I highlight the podcast with Sally Norton. But these are the least toxic plant foods, fruit and honey with raw dairy. Um, there are many cultures that continue to use dairy and have for thousands of generations. Uh, the Maasai, et cetera, in Tanzania, who I also visited, use raw dairy. In my podcast with uh, Bill Schindler, we talked about the Samburu, who mix blood and raw milk. And that is something that I would like to try. I had the fortune, the good fortune of drinking raw turkey blood, which was frankly quite delicious and clearly nourishing when I was at Force of Nature for their turkey harvest this year. There's a video of that on my Instagram. As you guys know, I like to eat lots of organs. Um, mostly for the fact that I want to see how they taste and how my body responds, how I feel after eating them. And also because I want to live like uh, as close as I can or do my own version of the remembering, right? When I was in Tanzania with the Hadza hunter-gatherers, uh, I ate ba baboon brains for that reason. And many, including uh, Joe Rogan, who I was texting with uh, about the trip, said, what are you doing? Aren't you worried about prions? Uh, we've learned that there are no prions and baboons that have ever been passed to humans. In fact, there are no documented cases of uh, prions being passed from primates to humans. I do not believe uh, there is a disease called Kuru, which was spread by humans eating other humans in some African tribes that were cannibalistic. Uh, people had, I guess, sporadic, uh, uh, sporadic incidents of Crutchfield-Jakob disease. We don't really know why this human prion disease happens, but I believe that the cannibalistic villagers in some tribes in Africa were eating humans who may have died from uh, Kuru prion disease that was sporadic and that caused outbreaks of prion disease. But nevertheless, I ate those uh, baboon brains with the Hadza for the same reason. I was there with the Hadza in Africa thinking, 
this is a very unique experience during this lifetime of mine. And I would like to have this experience now. I'm willing to accept the risks. I want to understand how our ancestors lived. And that is not an experience that I will likely get many times in my life. I will certainly go back to Africa. We will let you know when we do go back to Africa. If any of you guys want to come, maybe we can get a bigger group, um, though not too big to not disturb the Hadza's culture, but we will probably go back to Africa. But at that moment in my life, I didn't know if I would be back. And I certainly wanted to do that with the Hadza. The baboon brains were delicious. And I'll tell you what, this is another reason I'm a fan of organs. <laughs> when I eat these things, I feel differently. When I eat testicle, I definitely feel an improvement in my libido. And when I eat brain, I perhaps it's subjective. Perhaps this is a confirmation bias of my own experience. I definitely feel improvement in my cognition, which is why it was so important to me to build, to create supplements at Heart and Soil that include both of these organs. We have whole package, which has testicle in it, and recently released Moon Memory and Brain, which has brain. It's pretty hard to get brain in the United States, and testicle is a commodity. I've joked about it being more valuable than Bitcoin. Um, have you guys, if you guys heard many of my podcasts this year on cryptocurrencies, you know that Bitcoin is more valuable than a testicle, but uh, testicles are rare and hard to get. And uh, putting them in a desiccated organ supplement makes it easier for me and easier for you guys. So I'm proud of those things. And the benefits of them were really recapitulated in my experiences this year, personally eating both of those organs. Uh, we also have blood in many of our supplements at Heart and Soil, specifically Whole Package also has blood and lifeblood. And I'll tell you what, blood is a sleeper organ. Many people don't think about eating blood. There are other cultures that do eat blood, but uh, I wish I could get more of it in my life. And I do take desiccated blood from time to time with our supplements. So um, that was a very long-winded introduction. We did a wide-ranging uh, swath there. Let's move on to um, the podcast from January the 11th with Chris Kenobi. So I've had Chris Kenobi on the podcast twice, and we talked about seed oils multiple times. In this podcast, we talked about the history of seed oils, and there were a couple of papers that I would like to share with you guys that really stood out for me. The other podcast that you should reference regarding seed oils is Tucker Goodrich's podcast. I'll refer to that one in a moment. But I want to show you guys a couple of papers that came up with uh, Chris Kenobi. The takeaway from these podcasts with Chris Kenobi and Tucker Goodrich is that seed oils, because of their excess linoleic acid content, are probably the single greatest driver of chronic disease and illness in humans. They are evolutionarily inappropriate. They are evolutionarily inconsistent. Many people debate this, and I've had debate with people. Chris Kenobi um, has debated people. Tucker Goodrich had a debate with Alan Flanagan this year about this, and that was what we talked about on our podcast. So people debate this, but I think there is an overwhelming amount of evidence, and it's so evolutionarily inconsistent to consume large amounts of linoleic acid in seed oils that you should not do it. And there's lots of evidence, which I will show you now, which can corroborate that assertion. The first of these studies is this one. I will screen share for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, but I will also read the studies titles for those who are just listening. Um, wait for this one to come up here. The title of the study is Can Linoleic Acid Contribute to Coronary Artery Disease? This is published in 1993 in the Journal of American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And this is a really striking study because though it is associational, the association is very strong. This was a cross-sectional study. I have talked many times about the dangers of epidemiology, so we cannot draw causative, uh, we cannot make causative inference from this study, but we can create a hypothesis based on this correlation. So this is a cross-sectional study of 226 patients undergoing coronary angiography. And what they did was really cool. They looked at the linoleic acid. This is the fatty acid in seed oils that I am so concerned about, guys. They looked at their linoleic acid concentration in adipose tissue. That is an 18-carbon omega-6 
polyunsaturated fatty acid, okay? And they found these results are therefore indicative of a positive relationship between linoleic acid intake and uh, coronary artery disease, that is CAD. So what they found was that when they looked, they found more linoleic acid in the fatty tissue of those with more coronary artery disease. There are so many ways to check linoleic acid levels in the human body. Really, fatty acid um, levels within the adipose tissue is the only accurate way. But this is so clear. There's a strong association here that when there's more linoleic acid in the fatty acid tissue, which certainly is indicative of more linoleic acid intake, there is a positive association with um, coronary artery disease. So what they say here is that um, there is a a concern that this may be uh, causative. Now, what are the problems with a study like this? So the reason you would want to be skeptical of a association is you could say, well, maybe the people eating more linoleic acid have some other behavior in their life that is causing them to have more coronary artery disease. But I think that that is less likely, but that is the problem with epidemiology and that is the question we must always ask. I will show you guys a few other studies that show mechanistic levels. And as I talked about in the podcast with uh, Tucker Goodrich, there are multiple interventional trials, which are not epidemiology, they are not observational, that show specifically the Minnesota coronary study and the Sydney diet heart hypothesis that when you give people more linoleic acid, there is more incidence of heart disease and also more incidence of cancer and earlier death. So you guys can refer to those trials if you would like and refer to the podcast I did with Tucker Goodrich this year if you would like to hear us talk about the, the validity of those studies. Those studies have been widely debated, but when you look at the actual methods of the studies, I believe they are rigorous and they stand the test of time. Um, the proponents who would say that linoleic acid is fine for humans, I'll let them have all the seed oils, but they say those studies are not valid. But Tucker and I, I believe, make a very strong case those studies are, in fact, quite valid, and those are interventional studies. There are also mechanistic studies to suggest that linoleic acid is problematic. The probable underlying mechanism here, you ready for this? This is going to get kind of technical, is related to uh, enrichment of fatty acid cell membranes and fatty acid mitochondrial, uh, the fatty acids in mitochondria of fat cells, that is adipose tissue, with linoleic acid, leading to uh, essentially broken fat cells. I talked to Ben Bickman about this, but I believe it was in 2020. We talked about how fat cells are the arbiter. These are the guys. These are the cells in the human body that determine whether you are insulin sensitive or insulin resistant. I don't love the word insulin resistance. I think that insulin resistance is a term that is fraught with problems because many of you uh, savvy listeners will know that when you do ketogenic diets, you become insulin resistant. That is physiologic insulin resistance and must be... Um, juxtaposed with pathological insulin resistance. I don't like to even get confused with those uh, juxtapositions. I like to say metabolic dysfunction. A ketogenic diet won't cause metabolic dysfunction, but it will cause physiologic insulin resistance because when you are on a ketogenic diet, your fat cells are releasing non-esterified free fatty acids, which are the things in the blood circulation that signal to your muscles to become insulin resistant, to spare glucose for the brain, the adrenals, the testes, and the kidneys, and the red blood cells, et cetera, who can only use glucose for metabolic processes, or excuse me, uh, who prefer to use glucose for metabolic processes, because we know that the brain can use ketones, but always needs some supply of glucose. What I am saying here is that, number one, I don't like the term insulin resistance. Number two, fatty acids leaking from fat cells can be physiologic in the case of a ketogenic diet, which I think will lead to problems long-term in most people and should not be done long-term. 
or it can be pathological in a state of metabolic dysfunction because the membranes of those fat cells are enriched in linoleic acid, leading to essentially broken signaling in those fat cells and the fat cells growing too large and spewing out inflammatory mediators, that is cytokines, et cetera, and these fatty acids that signal to the rest of the body to become insulin resistant. And in this case, it is pathologically insulin resistant because you are not eating a ketogenic diet. People can be eating carbohydrates and getting a signal from their fat cells to the muscle to be insulin resistant. I can show you guys a study which uh, talks to that in a moment. But let's talk about linoleic acid and the coronary artery disease a little more. This is mostly from the podcast I did with uh, Chris Kenobi. So here's another interesting study that looks at um, the idea that diets may prevent many diseases. Now, if you go down the study, there is some. there are some really fascinating graphics like this one specifically that looks at coronary heart disease mortality in tissue um, <clears throat> highly unsaturated fatty acids. So this is essentially um, similar to the other one I just showed you. This is looking at uh, not 226 patients, but across multiple countries and looking at the percentage of omega-6 HUFA, H-U-F-A means highly unsaturated fatty acids um, in the tissues, again, the fatty tissue and the coronary heart disease mortality. The, the R squared here is 0.96, guys. <laughs> There is a huge correlation. There's a very, very strong correlation between um, Greenland, which has the lowest, and USA, which is at the highest, highest uh, part of this graphic, and the Mr. Fit quintiles, the Quebec studies, Japan. We need to put more points on this graph, but the points that are here really suggest that the more omega-6 fatty acids that are highly unsaturated, that is mostly linoleic acid that you have in your fatty tissue, the higher your coronary heart disease mortality is. Again, this is observational, um, but it generates a very compelling, interesting hypothesis and makes us really pause when we're thinking, hmm, maybe there's something going on here. There's another really interesting study that I came across this year that I will show you guys as well, looking at longevity, looking at the, um, the amount that certain animals live uh, and trying to understand how long uh, animals live in relation to the amount of linoleic acid in their membranes. And what they find is that the animals who have the lowest amounts of linoleic acid in their membranes live the longest. Again, correlation, but fascinating. So here is this study. Title of the study, Metabolism and Longevity. Is there a role for membrane fatty acids? And you can see here from this graphic that the peroxidation index of a membrane on the y-axis is inversely related to the lifespan of uh, mammals, birds, wild mice. And you can see humans down here uh, living to sometimes 100 years with um, Idaho mice living four to five years. There's a very strong correlation here. There's a good uh, fit to this line as well between the amount of linoleic acid in membranes and the uh, lifespan of these animals. So again, this is just correlation, but it serves to generate a very compelling hypothesis that um, that linoleic acid is to blame for many of these things and is a very huge problem. Now, if you want more of this, listen to the podcast with Chris Kenobi. I'll talk about the podcast with Tucker Goodrich in one moment as well. And I believe there is at least 
one more study that I could show you guys that is quite interesting um, to look at from this perspective when we are thinking about what um, these fatty acids may be doing in humans. So I'll show you guys this study. Again, I apologize if this is um, difficult for those who are watching, but I did want to highlight some of these studies in person as I usually do. The title of the study is A High Linoleic Acid Diet Exacerbates Metabolic Responses and Gut Microbiota Dysbiosis in Obese Rats with Diabetes. It's a rat model, but what we clearly see in interventional animal models and the human studies that I talked about is that adding more linoleic acid to the diet causes freaking havoc, guys. It causes havoc. And as I mentioned early on in this podcast, getting um, a disordered gut microbiome can happen for a lot of reasons, but linoleic acid and polyunsaturated fatty acids can be one of those reasons. So this is a big deal and um, something that should be avoided at all costs, in my opinion. Again, this is how you get your, um, your fasting insulin down. On January the 19th, I talked with Sean O'Mara, and this is actually another interesting segue from this, the Chris Kenobi podcast. And I really like this podcast with Sean O'Mara because we showed images. If you guys like pictures, we showed amazing images of visceral adipose tissue on MRI studies. And what you see is many compelling things. The first of which is that Sean O'Mara was able to work with people and have their visceral adipose tissue go down significantly over the course of six months with diet changes alone. There was someone who was over-exercising and their visceral adipose tissue was massive and they didn't even really do much exercise. They changed their diet, they eliminated seed oils and their visceral adipose tissue shrinks massively. We know that this fatty tissue inside the peritoneum, inside your belly, that is the fatty tissue that is not jiggly, that is not under your skin on your belly, but it's actually under your muscles and your fascia of your belly. That fatty, that tissue around the organs directly within the peritoneum is highly correlated with uh, insulin resistance, more specifically metabolic dysfunction. Whether or not that fatty tissue releases specific inflammatory mediators, it certainly might, or sends them directly to the liver because of the portal circulation. The circulation of that fatty tissue may go directly to the liver causing uh, more damage, but that visceral adipose tissue is a major problem for humans. It may be a correlate or it may be causal. I have seen some studies where they do omentectomies. They actually go in and they cut out the fat of the omentum, which is the fatty apron in your belly. And they don't really see a lot of improvement in metabolic dysfunction, probably because anyone that has a lot of fatty tissue in the omentum is going to have fatty tissue other places. And those fatty um, those fat cells, those adipocytes are broken everywhere. So cutting out the omentum, cutting out uh, visceral adipose tissue may not be enough to actually change things, which doesn't make, which makes reasonable sense. You probably have to change it at a fatty acid level, which means changing your whole diet. I should have mentioned something earlier that humans are monogastric animals. We have one stomach and monogastric animals, that is chicken and pork, chicken and pigs uh, and humans and other animals, but those are the ones that humans consume, um, cannot convert polyunsaturated fatty acids to saturated fatty acids. We cannot get rid of polyunsaturated fatty acids, which means if you eat polyunsaturated fatty acids, if you ate cookies or crackers or chips at Christmas with polyunsaturated fatty acids, your adipocytes are now more enriched in polyunsaturated fatty acids. It's not a death sentence. It doesn't happen forever. Your body will eventually, I believe, um, recycle those. And if your diet contains more saturated fat and more monounsaturated fat, the two fats that are found in animal foods, primarily, 
Um, but and in some plant foods, like coconut oil, for instance, you will change those out. And we know that over time, you can change the fatty acid composition of your cells in your body, specifically your adipocytes, your fat cells. Those are the most important ones to change. And it starts with your diet, which is why animal fats are so important. So that's really important to note that if you are eating polyunsaturated fatty acids, if the animals you are eating are eating polyunsaturated fatty acids, they are enriched in linoleic acid and you are getting more linoleic acid. In the podcast today with Tucker Goodrich, you heard us talk about the fact that chicken fat is often a very large source of linoleic acid for humans. And last year in 2020, I did a podcast with Nina Teicholz and that one was titled, Why Chicken Might Be Killing You. I had some you know, hyperbolic title to get you guys to click on it. I'm sorry, I try. And it's true, I'm not a fan of traditionally raised chicken. I'm not a fan of traditionally raised pork. What we know, is that those animals have fatty acid content that is high in linoleic acid, higher than their wild quote unquote counterparts, and you can get excess linoleic acid in that way, and this could contribute to major problems. So something to think about. So Sean O'Mara's podcast was amazing because we looked at images, we talked about the benefits of sprinting versus chronic cardio. I am no fan of chronic cardio, guys. I used to be an ultra runner. I ran multiple 50 plus mile races. It did nothing for my health, but give me blood in my urine, hurt my kidneys, uh, probably mini rhabdo from time to time, and uh, tanked my hormones and made me extremely skinny. Uh, it didn't help that I was doing a vegan diet at the time, but that was no uh, time in my life that I'm proud of. I think that ultra running is pretty dangerous for humans. Uh, if you want to ultra run because you uh, enjoy it mentally, fantastic. I think people do incredible feats of endurance in their life, but understand that it's probably not good for you as a human organism. Um, and sprinting is much better. So when I do do cardiovascular exercise, I'm either in the sauna, which counts, or I am sprinting, or I'm paddling for waves in the ocean, which is a lot of sprinting, and then resting, and sprinting, and resting. But we talked about sprinting with Sean O'Mara. We talked about these visceral adipose tissue changes. And the one other thing I want to highlight from this podcast with Sean O'Mara, who is a physician in Minneapolis, and he's seen thousands of these visceral adipose tissue scans, is that over and over, he has vegans come into his office and they say, I've been eating healthy for 20 years. I'm not going to have any visceral fat. And they are full of it. A vegan diet does not exempt you from visceral adipose tissue. There was a recent buzz on Twitter uh, about a gentleman who um, had been eating a keto or carnivore type diet for many years and had a triple bypass. And people were asking me to comment. There were vegans chiming in saying, see, we told you so. And I thought this was so ironic because I've tweeted in the past and highlighted the fact that the reverse is also true. These are both anecdotes. We don't know all of the history. There are many examples of people who eat vegan diets having massive heart attacks as well. We don't know what this gentleman on uh, Twitter's uh, fasting insulin was for the five years leading up to his his problems. Maybe he was getting seed oils in a place that he wasn't aware of it. Maybe he had a genetic problem that led to hypercoagulability or issues with um, premature or accelerated atherosclerosis related to genetics and LDL metabolism. If you guys listen to the podcast this year with Dave Feldman, which is quite technical, um, I didn't intend this podcast to be technical, but it's turning out to be technical. Um, you heard that many people with familial hypercholesterolemia have LDL metabolism defects as well, which change the way that their immune cells take up cholesterol, and that can lead to accelerated atherosclerosis. So when we dig more into the details of this gentleman on Twitter, what we find is that for years before he made his dietary changes, he had pre-existing coronary artery disease, and he had elevated oxidized LDL and elevated LP little a, 
And these were not addressed. So there's a much richer history here that needs to be examined. Why was his oxidized LDL high? Maybe this gentleman had exposure to heavy metals and that was causing his LDL to oxidize. That can lead to atherosclerosis as well. So there's many things that can cause atherosclerosis beyond simply metabolic dysfunction. And we cannot use these anecdotes. The vegans love to use this anecdote and say, you see, meat is causing this problem. Uh, Nassim Taleb even chimed in and I had a comment to him that he should just go back to being anti-fragile or whatever bullshit he's up to, but uh, he was no fan of a carnivore diet either. He said it, it caused it or at least exacerbated it. And I stand firmly behind the notion that a carnivore diet, an animal-based diet will not exacerbate or worsen your coronary artery disease. And uh, Sean Omar is a great example of a physician who's worked with many people and seen them improve their visceral adipose tissue levels and by proxy their metabolic health or directly their metabolic health as he's testing the fasting insulin with animal-based diets. So um, this is something I wanted to comment on. Maybe you guys are familiar with that story on Twitter, but I think that we should be very careful with this and um, send uh, gift packages of meat and organs to all of the vegans out there who love to just um, pick the anecdotes and, um, and not admit that they're an anecdote and then try and vilify a carnivore diet. Now, I will say that sometimes I use anecdotes and I always admit when I use them. And as in this podcast, I have always tried to qualify what is an anecdote and what is not. Anecdotes are like epidemiology studies. They are good for generating hypotheses, but are not uh, able to be the foundation of a causative inference. So check out that podcast with Sean O'Mara as well. On February the 8th, I did a podcast with Stephen Lynn. Now this was a really cool one for me because we talked about diet and dental health. That is specifically diet and teeth health. And my biggest takeaway from this podcast, well, a couple of them, Marilyn Monroe's diet was steak. <laughs> and I believe she ate a little liver and carrots. That was basically what Marilyn Monroe ate. If you heard the podcast this year with Tim Grover, you know that Michael Jordan ate steak before his games. It's an interesting, fun anecdote, though people have also pointed out that Kobe Bryant ate pizza before his games. And I'm good friends with George St. Pierre now. And he's told me that he ate pasta uh, marinara before, or excuse me, uh, fettuccine Alfredo before his fights. So who knows? <laughs> Maybe none of those are that valuable, but I thought it was interesting that Michael Jordan ate steak before his games. And I think that if Kobe had eaten steak and if George St. Pierre had eaten steak before his fights, he would have done even better. Those two would have been even better uh, athletes. And George is a friend now. He's working with us uh, to collaborate to spread the message of heart and soil in 2022. Stay tuned for that exciting news. Um, he's a huge fan of what we do and we are huge fans of him as a human. So that's an exciting collaboration that is coming here as well. But um, what we find is that the main question from this podcast was that I'm not convinced, neither is Stephen Lynn, a biological dentist in Australia. Uh, well, maybe it's called the, uh, the world penal colony now, but it used to be called Australia. Uh, sugar is not the direct cause of tooth decay. And I think about this a lot like the sun. I don't think the sun is the direct cause of skin cancer, specifically basal and squamous cell skin cancer. I think there's something else going on in both of those cases. In the case of teeth, there are these immune cells called odontoblasts. And what is very important is that the, um, the amount of fatty acids or specifically fat-soluble vitamins like vitamin K2, uh, A and D and E in the human diet, uh, A, D and K2 are needed are necessary for proper function of these immune cells, these odontoblasts that control the microenvironment around the teeth. And I think it's very clear now, you can make a very strong case that tooth decay is not excess sugar. 
It is fat-soluble vitamin deficiency. This reminds me of the Rotterdam study. You guys may have heard me talk about this in my book, The Carnivore Code. The Rotterdam study is epidemiology, but what they found was that those people in Rotterdam, in Denmark, who had more vitamin K2, there were three groups. I believe it was something like 35 micrograms a day, 25 to 35, and less than 25, or maybe 15. I don't, I don't remember the exact numbers, but the upper tertile, the upper group, was more than, or at least 35 micrograms of vitamin K2 a day, which is a small amount of vitamin K2. Those people in the Rotterdam study had the lowest rates, the lowest rates of heart disease and calcific aortic sclerosis, which is calcification of the aortic valve. Now, where are people in... Uh, Rotterdam getting vitamin K2 from, probably meat and liver and raw cheeses. And these are the foods that have been vilified and said to cause heart disease, but the people in that study who were eating more of those nutrients had less heart disease and less calcific aortic sclerosis. Who knows what their rates have been or how low the rates of those illnesses would have been in higher groups. Most of us eating an animal-based diet probably get more than 100 micrograms of vitamin K2 per day. I certainly do, eating liver and meat and now raw Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese. So that's something else to think about. But in the terms of tooth health, tooth health is about getting enough of the fat-soluble vitamins. Where are they found? Organs and raw dairy. Things like colostrum may be good, raw milk, raw cheese, K2. I mean, really, liver is a source of vitamin A and vitamin K2, and blood is a good source of vitamin D, or just get out in the sun or use a light box or go tanning. I'm not afraid of that at all if you don't live in Costa Rica or somewhere where you can get sun in the winter. But that, I think, is a very striking thing to consider, guys. That is a very striking thing to consider, that your tooth decay, your kid's tooth decay is not related to excess sugar. It is related to fat-soluble vitamin deficiency. I will just add anecdotally, I can speak to this as a personal human. I had seven cavities within the first four or five months of being a raw vegan, probably vitamin K2 deficiency, not a lot of vitamin K2 in my diet, in fact, zero. In the Rotterdam study, they found no benefits to vitamin K1, which is the type of vitamin K in plants, meaning that humans are not that good at converting K1 to K2. I was probably very vitamin K2 deficient. My odontoblasts were sickly and weak and puny, and I had seven cavities. Thankfully, I didn't have them filled. I just woke up from the insanity, which was my plant-based diet, my raw vegan diet, and I added uh, meat and then eventually liver back, and I've never had problems with my teeth since then. Uh, in fact, I'm not a huge fan of mainstream dentistry. Uh, shout out to all the mainstream dentists who may be listening to this, but uh, I appreciate you guys, but I'm not a fan of uh, fluoride, not a fan of mercury <laughs> or any of those other things. And I think that mostly people just need to eat freaking liver and heart and spleen and organs to get your fat-soluble vitamins and your teeth will be fine. Your teeth will be fine. So that was a really cool takeaway from the podcast with Stephen Lynn. You can go back to that one if you want more on that. Um, also, we talked about bad breath related to gut, gut dysbiosis. So many things will come back to really a number of themes from this past year. The dangers of seed oils, the importance of fat-soluble vitamins, which we get from eating organs, either fresh or desiccated, like we make it hard in soil, and uh, the importance of getting real sunlight, vitamin D. We know this from the COVID, uh, whatever you want to call it, travesty. And then uh, finally, the importance of the microbiome and how you don't want to mess it up. So these are important things to consider. Dysbiosis in your gut, in your mouth, will cause bad breath, not an absence of Listerine in your diet. I also talked about this a little bit on my social media this year, the fact that using mouthwashes may 
sterilize your pharynx, may, may sterilize the back of your throat. And perhaps gargling with uh, a, um, a very dilute peroxide solution may sterilize the back of your throat. People have suggested this perhaps for COVID prevention, but it, using a mouthwash will also destroy the microbiome in your mouth, which is necessary for the conversion of nitric oxide precursors into nitric oxide. So I am not a fan of mouthwash. Guys, you want the microbiome to be good. You would not sterilize your gut with antibiotics every day. Probably not should be sterilized. You probably should not be sterilizing your mouth with mouthwash on a daily basis either. And if you guys have heard me talk about this, I also think that toothpaste is kind of bullshit. I'll add this as an aside. Uh, what is toothpaste? Many, much of it has fluoride. Make sure your toothpaste doesn't have fluoride. You don't want more of that in your mouth. I shudder to think about how much fluoride I swallowed and ingested with fluoride gels as a kid that were put on my teeth by the dentist. It makes me pretty scared. And a lot of other toothpaste just use minty things to make your mouth smell minty, but they use soaps. Again, they could disrupt the oral microbiome. And they often may use other ingredients which are not great to have in your mouth. They're sometimes too abrasive. It's just a foaming minty thing in your mouth that doesn't change the quality of your breath long-term. You can use a toothbrush and water and achieve the same effect as toothpaste with many less of the additives, not to mention any of the other contaminants that may be in these toothpastes, things like BPA, BPS, BPE. Um, you guys may have seen my rants this year, uh, my bullshit series, talking about kale is bullshit, almond milk is bullshit. Uh, one of the more striking ones that I did was water in cans is bullshit. This means liquid death. This means LaCroix. This means Waterloo here in Austin. All of these cans or soup in cans or Tetra Pak that your, um, that your soup comes in or that your coconut water can come in, those are all lined with plastic and those all have xenoestrogens, BPA, and even the ones that are BPA-free have BPE and BPS, which are equally estrogenic, if not worse. Do not consume foods that touch plastic, or if you cannot avoid them, because many of us cannot avoid them completely, even I can't completely avoid that, do not drink things out of cans. That is bullshit. Okay, more podcast highlights. From February 26th and March 6th, I did a rundown of my time in Tanzania with my friend Anthony Gustin. In early February, I was there for two weeks. I've spoken about that earlier in this podcast a little bit. Takeaways from the trip were that the Hadza are incredibly happy. You don't need material things to be happy. You don't need digital realms to be happy. The Hadza don't want to live in our world. They know about it and they choose to hunt every day. They are some of the most content and simple people I've ever met. They're welcoming. They eat from nose to tail. They do not eat vegetables unless they are starving. I'm serious. And uh, considerations or people claiming that the Hadza eat 150 grams of fiber per day are bullshit. When we were with the Hadza, they were eating probably less than 20 grams of fiber per day, a little bit from berries, a little bit from baobab, but mostly they were interested in hunting and eating meat. It was a certain time of year that we were there, but um, certainly they probably have more fiber, but they don't eat 150 grams of fiber per day. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, nor do you need 150 grams of fiber in your diet to be healthy on a daily basis. So listen to those two podcasts with Anthony Gustin. If you would like to hear more about my time in Tanzania, uh, which was a fascinating thing. I will mention one other thing because people always ask about this. In photos, you can see that some of the Hadza hunter-gatherers have brown teeth. This is not from tooth decay. This is from staining related to fluoride. People will point to the Hadza and say, oh, they eat a lot of honey. They have a lot of tooth decay. Actually, they have very good oral uh, 
integrity, but they have staining of their teeth due to excess fluoride in their water supplies. Many of the aquifers in Tanzania have been tainted by fluoride. There's a lot of fluoride in the groundwater there. And many of these Hadza will get water in towns from time to time. Many of the people in Tanzania who are not Hadza have brown stains on their teeth from fluoride. So this is a big deal when kids are being raised and it can stain the teeth permanently as they are being uh, as in layers of enamel are being laid down in childhood and um, they are being mineralized during childhood. So most of the tooth decay in the Hadza is related to the fluoride consumption. Another thing to note is that the Hadza are not an idyllic, perfect culture. Uh, they are a time machine, but they're not a perfect time machine. They also smoke a lot, both marijuana and tobacco, with the men doing more of that. So some people have claimed that, oh, the honey is causing tooth decay in the Hadza, but I think you would have a hard time making the case that uh, there's not at least some contribution from um, the smoking, both tobacco and cigarettes, which is more heavily done by the men, at least in my observation. And as I talked about on multiple podcasts, even the one with Stephen Lynn that I just mentioned, uh, there's some good studies that show that honey is anti-cavity on the teeth. Yes, honey, a sugar-containing substance that is full, that is in a food matrix, can be anti-cavity on human teeth. That is pretty striking, isn't it? On March the 15th, I had a friendly debate with Stephen Gundry, uh, the author of The Plant Paradox, and we talked about a lot of things. We talked about fructose. One of the things I wanted to highlight from that podcast was that we both agree that lectins are a real problem for humans. These are carbohydrate-binding proteins found in things like beans and seeds and nuts and um, grains. And he points out, Stephen Gundry does, that Joel Furman uh, pressure cooks his beans. Well, why is Joel Furman pressure cooking his beans if he's not worried about the lectins in there? Sadly, pressure cooking your beans will not eliminate all of the lectins in them. And to that effect, I would ask the question to anyone who is hell-bent on eating beans, why are you eating such low-quality food? I think that it is very clear there is a hierarchy of foods that humans have always sought. We see this with the Hadza. Um, there's a great paper that I will show you guys that I have mentioned many times. And you can rank the foods that the Hadza prefer to eat with um, often honey being at the top. But when I observe them, uh, the food that they prefer the most is meat. Without question, Meat is the most sought after food by the Hadza, hands down. Meat and organs, I mean, specifically. So why would you eat low on the hierarchy of human foods? Uh, this is a great paper that you should all check out. Tubers as fallback foods and their impact on Hadza hunter-gatherers. This is by Frank Marlowe, perhaps one of the greatest scholars in the realm of Hadza anthropology. He did his PhD thesis with them. And you can see here their diet uh, is really composed of five foods, tubers, berries, meat, baobab, and honey. There are no vegetables in that list, guys. And in Frank's studies, both the men and the women rank honey as their favorite food. The men rank meat second. The women rank berries, uh, meat, and baobab kind of tied for second, third, and fourth. Both the men and the women rank tubers, which is the only thing that is even sort of vegetable uh, in this list, as their least favorite. Um, so they are fallback foods. Tubers fit the definition of fallback foods. I am quoting now because they are most continuously available, but least preferred foods. <laughs> Isn't this interestingly contradictory to the narrative that we hear in the mainstream health space. And I will tell you that I ate tubers with the Hadza. Yes, Carnivore MD ate vegetables with the Hadza and we spit them out. They are so fibrous, they taste like garbage and you must spit them out, at least the tuber that we ate, because of the quid, because of the amount of this sort of ropey fiber that you cannot even digest 
Um, even Stephen Gundry would not swallow this fiber. I think even prominent vegans like Joel Furman, who I debated the week following Stephen Gundry, would not be able to swallow this fiber. And if you did, uh, it wouldn't do anything for you except probably give you massive bad gas. So the Hadza clearly prefer those foods. And I think that that gives us a real indication of what humans should be eating. So why are so many humans eating these lower uh, on the totem pole foods that don't even make the top five? Because we've been told they're good for us. But this is the why I do this work, because I think that generally the high lectin foods, the grains, the beans, the nuts, and the seeds cause major problems for humans, as do other vegetables like leaves, because they're full of plant defense chemicals, lectins being one of those. Now, Stephen Gundry and I agree on that. We disagree on fructose. Stephen points to many studies done with fructose in isolation, which show a worsening of metabolic health, which I think is great. And what I have tried very hard to impress upon Stephen, um, who I respect greatly, is that there are many studies where, in which fructose is uh, given to humans or used in a food matrix that have a completely discordant effect on human health. For instance, um, these are some of the most interesting studies that I found this year. Uh, we can look at this one. Uh, orange juice or fructose intake does not induce oxidative or inflammatory response. <laughs> I'm not sure how anyone can argue with this. Um, specifically, I think that these are interesting results. These people gave, even fructose did not have oxidative inflammatory stress, but there are other um, uh, studies done by Robert Lustig and others that suggest that pure fructose might be problematic, but at least um, even an orange juice, major, you know, very clear study showing this interventional study that there is no um, no increase in reactive oxygen species. Now, as you'll see here, there was a significant increase in reactive oxygen species generation by mononuclear cells. Those are uh, inflammatory cells, macrophages, um, PMNs, polymorphonuclear cells, which are neutrophils, and in NF-kappa-B um, binding in mononuclear cells over the baseline after two hours of glucose intake. The changes were absent following fructose, orange juice, or water intake. There was a significantly lower ROS generation and NF-kappa-B, which is an inflammatory um, sort of signaling, part of an inflammatory signaling cascade. I believe it's a transcription factor, technically um, following orange juice, fructose, and water compared with glucose. So isn't that fascinating. And furthermore, um, I would offer, I would proffer studies like this one to Stephen Gundry, the effects of red orange juice intake on endothelial function and inflammatory markers in adult subjects with increased cardiovascular risk. What do we find? A seven-day consumption of red orange juice ameliorates endothelial function, that is, improves it and reduces inflammation in non-diabetic subjects with increased cardiovascular risk. Uh, this is a really good study exonerating fruit and showing a real distinction from other studies which may be done with pure fructose. So the takeaway here is that in a full food matrix, I do not worry about fructose. I don't worry about red orange juice. I don't worry about oranges. I don't worry about honey or any of those things. Finally, because this is such an important and interesting point, I want to point out this study, orange juice versus vitamin C, the effect on hydrogen peroxide-induced DNA damage in mononuclear cells. What we find here is that DNA damage significantly decreased three hours after the uh, blood-red orange juice and remained 
consistent for 24 hours. No effect of the vitamin C drink and the S drink, which was the sugar drink. In conclusion, the intake of a single portion of blood orange juice provided an early protection of mononuclear blood cell uh, induced DNA damage against oxidative DNA damage. Um, the effects of blood orange juice were not explained by vitamin C alone. Thus, other phytochemicals may be involved. Very interesting stuff here. Blood orange juice, valuable for protecting against DNA damage in these cells. Now, some people may be thinking about this and saying, Paul, isn't this one of the studies that you would have been, you know, uh, would have been against your ideas in the past? I think that if there is one way that I would self-characterize, it would be that I am an explorer. I was born, or I would say that I was born in the wrong millennium, the wrong decade, the wrong century, perhaps. Um, but maybe I'm just reincarnated. Maybe we all are. Who knows? Respect to all of you who believe anything with regard to what happens after you die. But I am most interested in seeking truth and evolving my ideas rather than getting stuck to a particular dogma. I think there are many people in the health space who remain staunchly adherent to dogma. I don't like that idea. Um, and I think I will not name names, but I think many of you will know of people who never change their ideas. But one of the things that I have changed my mind about or evolved my opinion about is fructose. And I've begun to believe that there is a distinction between uh, overall phytochemicals and plant defense chemicals. I did a podcast this year in which I debated Alex Leaf, um, and you guys can listen to that one. And this topic came up. I'm not against plants, and I'm not against phytochemicals. You heard in the podcast with Stefan Van Vliet this year that there are more phytochemicals from plants that end up in grass-fed meat. But I think there's a distinction between the chemicals that end up in meat uh, and organs from plants after animals have, in a way, detoxified them, and the chemicals that are found in fruits, which are not highly defended, and things like isothiocyanates or other molecules, even like uh, curcumin found in turmeric, which clearly appear to have a net negative effect. So I think that what we know is this. Plant molecules affect humans. They have a physiologic effect in humans. And many pharmaceuticals have a physiologic effect in humans. In fact, many chemotherapies that we use as humans are derived from plants. But all the pharmaceuticals that you find in a pharmacy have a package insert with these side effects. And we must be aware these molecules have side effects. Some are good, some are bad. And what is the net benefit or net negative of these molecules in humans? I have suggested this maxim for the ideal human diet the most bioavailable nutrients, that is vitamins, minerals, peptides, cofactors that we know directly participate in human physiology and the least amount of toxins that inhibit our biology or create damage to human DNA, enzymes, enzymatic processes, etc., cetera, um, have negative effects on gene transcription. This is the ideal human diet. And I believe that is why we can combine the least toxic plant foods, these being not highly defended fruit, which may contain some phytochemicals which have benefit in humans, but avoid the more highly defended parts of plants, the leaves, the stems, the roots, the seeds, seeds, nuts, grains, and beans, which are full of lectins, like we talked about with Stephen Gundry, but we must not um, be fooled or we must be careful when we believe that all plant compounds are always good for humans. One of the most controversial pieces that I did this year was my bullshit series, like I mentioned, kale is bullshit. Brussels sprouts are bullshit. And people have said, what about the isothiocyanates like sulforaphane in these? I have talked about that, frankly, ad nauseum in the past. And I will not go into much detail here other than to say that isothiocyanates like goitrin um, 
clearly found in Brussels sprouts, inhibit the absorption of iodine at the level of the thyroid. This to me is a good example of a net negative compound that has not been clearly shown to have a net positive benefit in humans. I believe you can get any of the benefits these molecules provide for you in isolation without the side effects they come with by eating meat and organs and the least toxic plant foods. That is perhaps the best sentence that I can use, that I can offer to summarize my perspective on these things. There are certainly studies that show that plant molecules do affect human physiology, but we must not ignore the entirety of their actions in humans. We must not ignore their side effects, which in my opinion are often worse, often outweigh the benefits, and many of the benefits are redundant. They can be gained from doing other things. This is the idea of environmental versus molecular hormesis, molecular hormesis coming from molecules, environmental hormesis coming from things like sauna, cold plunge, exercise, et cetera, fasting even from time to time. And there are really no side effects to environmental hormesis because there's no molecule circulating in your body. But environmental hormetics, like those things, can also increase glutathione. That is the reason that we are told these molecules in plants are good for us. We are told they are antioxidants when in fact they are pro-oxidants causing the NRF2 keep uh, one system to be activated, causing the transcription of genes which increase glutathione and glutathione producing enzymes. Well, you can achieve that without these plant molecules and then you can avoid the bad side effects of those plant molecules. You can do it in a smarter way. And all of this is intuitively laid out for us with people like the Hadza. They seek sweet things, brightly colored things, fruit, honey, animal foods, which are delicious and incredibly nutrient rich and we avoid the toxins. But we do get some of the plant chemicals in the meat when the meat is wild or pasture, uh, excuse me, I should say more specifically, regeneratively farmed, grass-fed and grass-finished. If you guys watch my social media this year, you'll know that the term pasture-raised uh, has been co-opted by Whole Foods, somewhat frustratingly, to represent a grain-finished meat. So don't be fooled by pasture-raised at Whole Foods. That is grain-finished meat. So the other thing that Stephen Gundry and I disagree about is fiber. <laughs> I'll let you guys listen to the podcast to hear my uh, critiques of fiber and why I don't think humans need fiber for a healthy gut microbiome. We talked about that a little bit at the beginning of this podcast when I mentioned the discussions with Lucy Mailing. but there is one study that I will share with you guys, which I think is kind of interesting, and it has to do with Islamic fasting. Um, Islamic fasting, which is Ramadan fasting, leads to an increased abundance of acromancia, mucinophilia, and bacteroides fragilis group, a preliminary study on intermittent fasting. I think that there are many studies like this which suggest that uh, intermittent fasting can have benefits to the gut or at least change the gut microbiome. I think that in animal studies as well, studies of rats and mice, intermittent fasting often has a beneficial effect on the gut microbiome. It is something that I practice on a daily basis, but I'm not crazy strict about it. I tend to stick to a um, a 10-hour eating window. I've found eight-hour eating windows to be a little bit restrictive sometimes if I'm really honest about when I am taking my first and last bite of food. But I do think it's reasonable to do a 10-hour eating window, which means that if I eat my first bite of food at 6.30, my last bite of food is at 4.30 p.m. Uh, an eight-hour eating window would be much smaller than that, and I don't really like to constrain myself that much. On the flip side of intermittent fasting, if you intermittent fast too much, we know that you can lower your male hormones. I've seen it in practice as well. So find what works for you. Don't be too strict about it, but know that uh, intermittent fasting can be beneficial for the gut. My point in showing that study is also that what is a lower fiber diet than intermittent fasting? 
if fasting, if completely putting nothing in the gut can change the gut microbiome, can reset the gut microbiome, often having beneficial clinical consequences, why are we so hung up on fiber as a beneficial food for humans? We know that there are other short-chain fatty acids that can be used by the colonic epithelial cells that we don't need butyrate as the only short-chain fatty acid. We also know that butyrate can be made in low-fiber environments or zero-fiber environments. And I will assure you that there are so many people on animal-based diets who poop just fine and have beautiful poops and have very healthy gut microbiota. You do not need 150 grams of fiber per day. I disagree with my colleague, Stephen Gundry, on that. Um, I also, as I hinted at, debated Joel Furman this year on March 22nd. And uh, there is really too much from that podcast to summarize here, but the highlights, uh, the Sports Center Reel goes like this. Joel Furman and I talked for an hour and a half. He believes that epidemiology studies, observational studies, because they are the majority of the studies done, because let's be honest, they're the most convenient, should represent the majority of the evidence and the weight of those studies points to the fact that plant-based diets are good for humans. I debated him on this. I countered with the notion that I think that garbage in, garbage out, that if you have a landfill and a mountain of garbage and a mountain of shit, doesn't make it into something that is beautiful. It just makes it a mountain of crap. And epidemiology studies are a mountain of crap. I've noted a few of them already in this podcast, but I've given the caveats that go along with them. And hopefully those uh, were clear enough when I enumerated them. So what are the caveats that must go along with epidemiologic studies that suggest that plant-based diets are good for humans? That perhaps it is something else that people who are eating plant-based diets are doing in their life that is causing a benefit. This is an association, not causation, not a causative inference. And in fact, in these studies, there is a good amount of evidence to suggest that these are um, what are called healthy user bias uh, affected or confounded studies, meaning the people in these studies who eat plant-based diets are often also the people who exercise more, get more sunlight, are more likely to get mammograms and checkups and colonoscopies and are of higher socioeconomic status and less likely to smoke and drink and ride motorcycles and jump off cliffs and surf big waves and surf in shark-infested waters. It's just true. These are the people who are risk takers. These are the people who have disregarded the uh, health advice of the last 50 years, which has been based on Ansel Keys' faulty research saying that saturated fat is bad for us. So who eats red meat? It's the James Dean types. These people are also more likely to drink, to smoke, and to do other things that buck the norm. Now, that can lead to worse health outcomes. What other evidence do we have that this healthy user bias and unhealthy user bias is going on? Well, there is a whole host of epidemiologic studies done in Asia, which shows that the people who are eating the most red meat across uh, multiple countries, these are epidemiologic studies, uh, including over 225,000 people, multiple studies like this, the men who eat the most red meat have the lowest rates of heart disease. I'll repeat that. The men who have the most red meat in their diet have the lowest rates of heart disease. The women who eat the most red meat have the lowest rates of cancers, including breast cancer. So what is going on? Is red meat good for Asians and bad for US? No, the narrative is different across those two countries. And that is mostly what the epidemiology is reflecting. Who has a higher socioeconomic status in Asia? People who eat red meat. Who has a higher socioeconomic status in the Western world? People who do plant-based diets. That's just generally how it goes. But that is the danger of epidemiologic research, which is why I argued to Joel Furman, we must turn to interventional research to really get a sense of what is the most indicative thing of humans. The best interventional study I think that's ever been done is human evolution. Um, I say that only slightly with a tongue-in-cheek manner, but we know that 
there are so many nutrients in meat that you cannot get in plants, carnitine, choline, carnosine, answerine, creatine, vitamin K2, B12, riboflavin. These played a huge role in the formation of the human brain. It's a huge topic that I talked about with Mickey Bendor in a podcast this past year. And I think that it's very clear that, or at least you can make an extremely strong case, that the inclusion of meat in the human diet made us human, was integral to the growth of the human brain. I also talked about this with Bill Schindler on our podcast this year. Eating meat and organs made us human. That is so key. Why would they be bad for us? It makes no sense. And there is a host of interventional research, much of which I enumerated, I talked to Joel Furman about in this podcast who suggests that including a red meat in an interventional manner, not observational, but interventional manner in the human diet leads to improvements in human health, decreases in uh, inflammatory markers like CRP or uh, TGF-beta or IL-6 and improvements in metabolic health. So it was an interesting conversation with Joel. I appreciate him coming on uh, to the podcast and I think that this is the reason, this is one of the reasons that I wanted to build the Animal-Based Nutrition Research Foundation, which is the nonprofit that is coming very, very soon. We have applied for nonprofit status and that will take a few more months. We've got a website coming soon, but I want to be able to fund studies that are really aimed at the most impactful outcomes so that we can really show people clearly that an animal-based diet, a carnivorous diet, does uh, good things in the human body, or we can be proven wrong and say, hey, we were wrong, but we did the studies. So this is all coming very soon, guys. Uh, Another thing you should all know about is that we are doing another animal-based gathering in Santa Teresa, Costa Rica, which is where I live most of the year. Uh, In March of this year, I believe it's March 11th to the 14th, you can go to animalbasedgathering.com, animalbasedgathering or gatherings.com and sign up for that. Uh, it'll be a four-day event. There's tons of people. Last year, over 100 people came to this animal-based gathering, and the proceeds from that will benefit the um, the Nutrition Foundation, which we're excited to fund studies. Maybe I can convince Stefan Van Vliet to do a study. Maybe I can rope my friend Tommy Wood into helping me create um, a study protocol. But in the next, uh, in 2022, we hope to um, create a very robust nonprofit foundation to fund studies. And I would like to do studies like this, but aimed at different diets. This is a epidemiology study. It is looking at the NHANES cohort, and these are often fraught, but what they found was that in the NHANES cohort, they looked at the hypothesis that dietary patterns are directly associated with markers of inflammation and endothelial function. They looked at CRP, interleukin-6, E-selectin, et cetera, et cetera. But <laughs> they kind of... The the problem with the study is that they characterized a prudent pattern uh, by higher intakes of fruit, vegetables, legumes, beans, fish, poultry, and whole grains, and a Western pattern by higher intakes of red meat, processed meat, uh, sweets, desserts, French fries, and refined grains. Can you guys see why epidemiology is so bad? Because you're lumping all these foods together. You don't know which of these foods is the real problem. I would love to go back, and even though I don't want to do epidemiology, it would be so fascinating to go back to this exact cohort, the NHANES, and switch some of those foods around. I am willing to bet a Bitcoin. I am willing to bet a Bitcoin that if you redid this study and you put red meat in with the prudent pattern, that it would be also associated with a lower pattern of inflammation. And then if you took out vegetables and legumes and whole grains and you made a prudent pattern, an animal-based pattern, uh, something like fruit, fish, poultry, red meat, right? That would be meat, 
organs, fruit, honey, raw dairy, things I talk about as a minimum wage diet, I bet you, I'm willing to bet a Bitcoin, anyone can take me up on this offer, I'm willing to bet a Bitcoin that if you did that, you would find that at least in this epidemiology cohort from NHANES, that you would um, have decreased levels of inflammatory markers in that carnivore-ish animal-based pattern. So often, red meat gets associated with other junk food, sweets, desserts, french fries, and refined grains. Yeah, no shit that pattern is going to lead to increased markers of endothelial function uh, or dysfunction and inflammatory markers. There are so many easily done studies that I think could highlight the fact that red meat is king and organs are king. What we really want to do is interventional studies where we give people um, organs and red meat and we watch what happens to their inflammatory markers long-term or to their autoimmune disease long-term. That's going to take funding of the Animal-Based Nutrition Research Foundation. I'm sure that it'll come when we talk about this more, but this is all exciting stuff for 2022, as is the Animal-Based Gathering, March 11th to the 14th. Go to animal-based... I'm confirming the website right now, guys. This is what happens when you record podcast live. Go to animal-based gathering dot com and you can sign up to join us in santa Teresa, costa rica last year was amazing it is good community and um it is an amazing amazing experience for all of you so um again there's no profit that we will make from any of that all of those proceeds will go to the foundation and mostly it is just something that we are doing because we care about it and we want to build community amongst all of us Within the debate with Joel Furman, he also brought up many things that I've talked about multiple times in the past. Blue zones, uh, they're bullshit. I've talked about that many times on my social media. TMAO, it's bullshit. Talked about that many times on the the podcast. I I won't go into that in detail now. But you can find the debate and my rebuttal to his rebuttal on the podcast from this past year if you want to hear me debate Joel Furman about vegan and plant-based diets. Um, I I really do not believe that he was able to provide any substantial evidence that there are any interventional studies that show that red meat or organs are harmful for humans. On April the 6th, I did a podcast with Chris Ryan. This is one of my favorite ones of the year. He wrote a book called Civilized to Death, and we talked really philosophically about what it means to be a human and the reasons that humans get misled um, into really believing that civilization is a beneficial thing. So So many interesting pieces of this podcast, too many to really enumerate in one summary. But in the beginning, we talked about this this unfortunate story of, I believe the gentleman's name is Brian Stevenson, who was holding onto a hot air balloon that lifted off from the ground and he did not want to let go and he held on and then eventually was floating so high up in the air that his grip failed and he fell to his death. This is obviously a metaphor for what we're doing with society, with civilization. We sort of all have a sense that it is wrong, that it is a hot air balloon that is rising out of control. We don't really want to hold on, but we are somehow stuck. We hesitate in the moment, and the fear is that we will hold on too long and become trapped by this civilization. Neither Chris nor I believes that we should go back to living in um, loincloths, but it, there are so many interesting anecdotes from this book. Uh, during, I believe, in American history, there were many instances of settlers uh, during the Civil War, etc., being kidnapped or running away to live with the Indians and or Native Americans and eventually never wanting to come back. It doesn't happen in the reverse direction. And this is an important point to note that the Hadza don't want to live in our world, uh, but I want to live in their world. It would be difficult for me, raised in 
Westernized society to give up everything, to give up friends and family and access to surfing, but they were pretty happy. And I would consider it, especially if a zombie apocalypse happens or if we go to a social credit score, you might be able to find me or you probably won't be able to find me in Lake Yasi, Tanzania. But there's just this inequality between the, I, between the fact that people who live in Westernized society often find freedom and enjoyment and yearn for simpler lives, like those that are lived in traditional hunter-gatherer cultures. And the reverse is not often true. Often those hunter-gatherers, whether they're Native Americans or Hadza hunter-gatherers, see what's going on in our society and don't want to be a part of it. I kind of debate the notion that we're living in the best time ever for humans now. I don't think we're happiest. I don't think life is the simplest. We're probably more comfortable, but I'm not sure that's a good thing. Uh, If you heard the podcast I did with Michael Easter this year, who wrote a book called The Comfort Crisis, you will understand more of the reasons I feel that way. I think that being uncomfortable, whether it's cold or heat or exercise or pushing yourself is critical to being a human. In the podcast with Michael Easter, we also talked about landscapes of despair, which are straight right angles, which I feel when I am in Washington, D.C. or Vienna, Virginia, or even Austin, Texas. And one of the reasons that I like living in Costa Rica and less urban environments more because fractalized patterns, this is one of the best takeaways I got from Michael Easter, fractalized patterns, being in nature is built into your vision. I also talked about this with Aaron Alexander in the podcast this year. Seeing the horizon is good for you as a human. It is calming. And we don't get to see the horizon enough as humans. We don't get to see fractalized patterns. All we see are right angles and overly manicured sidewalks. I was thinking about this yesterday on my way on the plane. Humans seek comfort. It's probably part of our DNA that screws us today, for lack of a less technical term. We seek comfort, and I think we overly seek comfort. We seek security, and I think we overly seek security. And Without sounding patronizing, I would encourage all of you, if you listen to this podcast, you are probably a truth seeker. You are essentially part of the remembering. I hope you are part of the remembering. And I would encourage you to take risks and to get out of your comfort zone, to do things that make you uncomfortable. One of the best parts of my trip back to Virginia was um, spending time with my mom, actually yesterday morning, on a cold Virginia morning with our feet, bare feet in the wet grass, staring at the sun to get the morning sunlight in my eyes and to ground. And of course my mom is saying, oh Paul, it's cold on my feet and the sun is really bright in my eyes. But after five minutes, she was fine. And um, I think that that was really great to share that with her, but she's not used to that either. We're all programmed to seek comfort, to seek security. But I think that the memories that you will make in your life that will be most meaningful for you will be things that might have a little risk, adventure, time in nature shared with people you love, that's not a secure thing. It's not always an easy thing. So this is just to say that my conversations with Chris Ryan, Michael Easter, Aaron Alexander from this year reminded me of these concepts, that getting too comfortable, getting too civilized is a bad thing and really in some ways akin to death of the soul. I'm getting a little philosophical now and I apologize for this, but I think that many of you listening might take account of your souls if you were listening to this part of the podcast and say, how happy are you? How alive is your soul? And that doesn't mean you need to leave your job or leave your family if your soul is not as happy as it could be. It probably just means you need to go jump in a lake or a river wherever you live, even if it's Michigan and it's frozen. Or you need to go and get in a tanning bed 
or go and go for a walk in the woods and see fractals instead of landscapes of despair. Do something to get uncomfortable. It's built into being a human. Hard to have it. And that's one of the reasons I love being in Costa Rica. I did a solo podcast this year about why I live in Costa Rica. And it's just my place where I can live out my own personal version of the remembering in the best way. But the podcast with all of those people are amazing and I think worth it. In the podcast with Chris Ryan, we also talked about the concept of the human zoo, one of the most striking sort of phrases that I've come up with this year. And if you saw my tweets, you will know that the bad news is that you live in a human zoo. And I live in a human zoo a lot of the time too. I live in a climate-controlled building. I don't live in Costa Rica. In Costa Rica, my house is open air. Um, I drive a car. I live under rules. And I try to step out of that cage as much as possible because the good news is the door to that cage is open. You have only to step through and those wild experiences await you and you will feel alive. And that is what we have forgotten. And that's what the remembering is all about. Remembering what you are supposed to eat and what you eat to feel alive and how you live to feel alive. There's a really telling story from the podcast with Chris Ryan of locusts and grasshoppers. And the simple version of the story is that when grasshoppers have enough to eat, and they're not crowded, they remain grasshoppers. But when they're crowded, they morph. They become a completely different beast, insect, with some genetic mutations or genetic differences. And they become locusts who just decimate fields. And I think we know this, that as humans, when we are too crowded, we don't treat each other well. I think there are many good things about social media but the way that people treat each other on social media spaces is like locusts. And there's something about either humans feel crowded on those spaces or there's anonymity. Something about it brings out the worst of us in humans. And I would encourage you all not to be divided. No matter what your political views are, no matter what your views on anything that's controversial today are, and to realize that there are forces that are probably deeper than we are aware that are trying to divide us and that coming together, this is a reason that we believe the animal-based gathering is so important, uh, around common beliefs is critical for us as humans. You need a tribe. Um, so remember those things in your life. Uh, on April the 16th and June 26th, I talk about how to tank your testosterone. On June 26th, I had Joe Whitaker on the podcast. He did a meta-analysis of six interventional studies. That is interventional studies that used low-fat, high-fiber diets and showed that in those studies, testosterone went down. So... How do you tank your testosterone? Low fiber, excuse me, high fat. Oh, I'm getting all mixed up now. High fiber, low fat diets can do it. Not a good thing. Animal fats are key, guys. One of the studies I pointed out to Joel Furman during our debate was looking at tallow, that is animal fat, the suet of animals, the thing we put in fire starter at hardened soil, is helpful is an improvement in rat models of colon cancer. Animal fat improves crypt foci and precancerous lesion incurrence in rat colons. Animal fat tallow is anti-cancer in rat colons. How cool is that? Animal fats are crucial for you. They're necessary for your hormones. In animal fat, specifically tallow, the fat from cows, which is why we make fire starter hard in soil. It is so important to get this fat. You can get it on steaks. You can get it uh, if you eat a fatty cut of meat, but so many people don't do that. This fat is critical because of stearic acid, something I talked about last year with many people on my podcast, this 
this saturated fatty acid that has been shown to turn on fat burning and odd chain fatty acids, something I have not talked a lot about on this podcast, but are known to be beneficial for human health and really only occur in animal fat. Sure, you can get stearic acid in cocoa butter, but it's not that good. And it's, you might as well just get it in tallow and eat a delicious steak with it. And just like you can get vitamin K2 from natto, but then you have to eat fermented soybeans with a bunch of other estrogenic compounds and phytic acid. And there's not even vitamin K2 in soybeans. It's from the bacteria that are fermenting the soybeans. So the sources of these really critical nutrients, K2 we talked about with Rotterdam, stearic acid we're talking about now with regard to human health, probably a contributor to adequate testosterone. Overall, animal fats are uh, critical for that. Best obtained from animal foods. So do not take your testosterone. Get animal fat in your diet. Also get animal organs. So I had a couple of podcasts this year, May the 4th with Robbie Sansom and just last week with Diana Rogers talking about sustainability. These are really critical. If you're interested in these issues, regenerative agriculture, how we feed 7.9 billion planet, check these two out. Robbie, like I said, is the CEO of Force of Nature Meats. We're going to collaborate with them at Hardened Soil this January for our Animal Based 30 Challenge. They're doing amazing work making regenerative meat more available to the general public. This is the way forward for us. One of the best takeaways from these, for me from this podcast with Robbie was the notion that you cannot abstain from voting with your dollars. You either vote for your dollars, you either vote with your dollars for Monsanto, Unilever, Agrigenta, and other multinational corporations, which is essentially what you do when you buy grain-finished meat, or you vote for grass-feeding, grass-finishing, regenerative agriculture farms, which support ecosystems. I did a couple of podcasts this year about the environment, which I'll mention in a second, but one of the great frustrations of mine is that people are overly CO2 myopic, in my opinion. We are so focused on greenhouse gases to the expense or at the exclusion of ecosystems. If we understood the importance of soil health and ecosystems, it wouldn't really be much of a conversation anymore. It would really be a clarion call toward regenerative agriculture. That is rotational grazing, grass feeding, grass finishing of animals, which is the only type of agriculture that can restore ecosystems, restore the microbiome, the microbiota, the mycorrhizal networks of the soil. And in doing so, it sequesters carbon into the soil. So that is the only way to do this. Even organic farming, which is tilling-based, will destroy an ecosystem. There's a great visual representation of this that I posted on my previously deleted Instagram. I don't know if I've reposted it on my new Instagram that shows an organic field next to a pasture of regenerative grass-feeding, grass-finishing pasture land. One is green grass, one is bare, barren dirt. You can guess which is which. No, I'll just tell you. Uh, regenerative agriculture produces green grass. Even organic farming destroys ecosystems. So there's really no great way to grow plants unless you have animals on the land. And when we're talking about how to feed 7.9 billion people on the planet, I think the question is already the wrong question. The question is, how do we feed as many people on the planet as well as possible in a healthful manner? Because we can't feed 7.9 billion people on the planet well with grains or plant-based foods. There will be so many nutritional deficiencies there. There's no caloric deficit for 7.9 billion people. What there is, is a 
micronutrient deficit. We don't need calories for 7.9 billion people. We need micronutrients. We need vitamin K2, vitamin A, riboflavin, folate, creatine, carnitine, choline, zinc, iron, copper. These are out of necessity found in animal foods. You cannot feed 7.9 billion people on the planet without feeding them animal-based nutrients or you will create a massive billions of people, literally, who are unwell. That's not what we want either. So the question is not, how do we feed 7.9 billion people? Ask a better question. How do we nourish 7.9 billion people? How do we get 7.9 billion people as healthy as possible? The answer to that question includes animal foods, regeneratively raised animal foods, end of story, full stop, Bill Gates, go home. And stop buying up farmland. Because anyway, I won't get too controversial about that guy. On April the 20th, I talked to Mickey Bendor about where we've come from as humans. I mentioned that one a little bit more in this podcast. It is a great one about anthropology. Miki talks about the trophic levels of humans and where we ate on those trophic levels. The takeaway is, again, like the podcast with Bill Schindler, eating meat made us human. Humans have always sought meat, and we saw this with the Hadza. We seek meat and organs. Try this for yourself. You will thrive. If you can't get fresh organs, get desiccated organs. So moving on. There were a couple of solo podcasts that I think were important to mention. I talked about a few of them earlier in this podcast. One of the most important ones was about vitamin A toxicity. Here are my simple thoughts about this. Vitamin A toxicity is real, but very hard to get. You would have to eat many ounces of liver every day for years to even be at risk of this. My recommendation is 0.5 to one ounce of liver per day. You can get that desiccated, like we make it hard in soil or fresh. In addition to other organs, it's important to also get heart for coenzyme Q10 to get brain for phosphatidylserine, to get testicle for the cofactors in there that clearly, at least subjectively, and now many people who have taken this supplement from hardened soil affect libido positively and probably affect women's libido as well because uh, women need testosterone as well. So getting organs is critical. A few ounces is great. Rotate them, get a variety of organs, which is again, why I'm so proud of what we do at hardened soil. It's so hard to get a variety of organs but with these desiccated organ supplements, you can get spleen and pancreas and kidney and blood and testicle and brain and intestines, things you can't get easily at any grocery store, but that form an integral part of a human diet. You don't need tons of them every day, but getting uh, a little bit of them every day, these very valuable doses, 0.5 ounces of liver per day is impactful. That's about the amount of liver that's in uh, six capsules of two of our supplements at hardened soil. So or even maybe six capsules of one of our supplements are hardened soil if you're doing something like bone marrow and liver. That's an impactful dose. That's specifically why I designed them that way, to have the most impactful dose and um, not be any way, shape, or form near any risk of vitamin A toxicity. What we know is that carnivores do accumulate more vitamin A in their liver, so things like seals or polar bears have much more vitamin A in their liver, 100,000 times more. Uh, I could be off on that number, but I think that's right, than a cow. It's gonna be very hard to get vitamin A toxicity from a cow. You could get it from a polar bear liver or a lion liver, but um, in Tanzania, we're we're only eating herbivores. We're eating eland and um, many other animals that are not consuming other animals. So we did eat a genetic cat, which is probably a carnivorous species, but that is a very, very small liver divided among the tribe, small dose. So know that vitamin A toxicity is real. I would not eat a pound of liver per day every day for years maybe even half a pound a day. So 
Those are my dosages. I think there has been way too much concern about fear-mongering about vitamin A. It's necessary for humans, but um, the doses that will get you there are much higher than people are talking about and nothing that I think many people listening to this are even nearly approaching, um, especially if you listen to your body and you think about dividing your liver with a tribe like the Hadza did. And furthermore, there are so many unique nutrients in liver that you cannot get in any other places. It is a critical part of the diet. We never got rid of liver. In Tanzania with the Hadza, we always treated the liver with respect. It was treated like gold, placed on a rock, very carefully divided among the tribe. This is clearly one of the most valuable organs in a, an animal in a kill. End of story. Um, I did a podcast about hair loss this year with Robert uh, English. That was one of the most popular podcasts. I guess people are interested about hair loss. The takeaways from that podcast were the following. Um, finasteride, uh, other medications that are 5-alpha reductase inhibitors will decrease your DHT. I believe that's a problem. I would not take a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. I would not decrease your DHT long-term. And there are many other plant compounds that can decrease your DHT long-term. If you are finding that you have hair loss, uh, rule out autoimmune causes, fix your gut, cut out the most offensive autoimmune foods, and get nutrients that are found in meat and organs. These are critical for proper hair growth. And do scalp massage. I think those were the main takeaways. Robert has a way uh, of recommending a scalp massage. It's on his website. It's free. You can listen to it in that podcast or go straight to his website and find the protocol for scalp massage. You can also use microneedling, but I think those are the ways to prevent hair loss as best as possible. Uh, nutrients, fixing your gut, fixing your microbiome, not crushing your body with an autoimmune disease that could be triggered by seed oils, uh, sugars, or lectin-containing foods, and getting the nutrients found in meat and organs, and massaging your scalp, which feels good in general. So do that. And thankfully, I've still got a full, big head of hair. I'm growing my hair out. I've gotten a couple questions this year about the blonde in my hair. This is not fake. This is actually from the Costa Rican sun and surfing in Costa Rica. Um, on June the 15th, uh, I did a podcast uh, about uh, how to lose weight with Sal Stefano. The really cool part of that podcast that I love that Sal mentioned was that running chronic cardio makes you a smaller version of yourself. It doesn't make you a better version of yourself. It makes you a smaller version of yourself, meaning that if you have 15% body fat, you're still going to have some chub if you run. Running isn't the way to get super lean. It's the way to make you a smaller version of yourself. What you really need, and I would completely agree with this sentiment, is more lean muscle mass, which increases your basal metabolic rate, and that is where the magic is. How do you get more lean muscle mass? Well, you eat foods that trigger lean muscle mass growth. You eat enough protein. You eat red meat. You eat foods that actually trigger mTOR, the transcription factor, the signaling molecule, the kinase, that all of these longevity experts are so worried about is the key to you being healthy long-term and maintaining healthy bone density and muscles which is what makes you attractive to the other sex, whether you are a man or a woman. Newsflash, ladies. Men don't like overly skinny uh, women. And I am not trying to create uh, any sort of body dysmorphia in any women, um, but men like muscular, toned, strong women. You, uh, if you're starving yourself, you are not doing good for your fertility, your long-term health, your baby's health, your family's health. Uh, having muscle as a woman is, is not a bad thing. It is longevity for both men and women. Uh, all too often uh, in my own personal life, I find that so many women are just afraid of lifting weights and are overly skinny. And I don't know, I live in Costa Rica, so there's a lot of women that are into plant-based diets and they don't have any butts. And that's just not attractive to us evolutionarily. We know what we want. Fertile men and women, animal-based nutrients create that end of story. 
Uh, chronic cardio doesn't create that. A little bit of cardiovascular exercise, great. Too much, smaller version of yourself. That's exactly what I was when I was a runner. I was 140 pounds, 145 pounds. Uh, I was a vegan at the time, so I was losing muscle from that. I was losing muscle from running. When I stopped running, I gained about 10 pounds of muscle back. But really, well, here's how it works. When I stopped a vegan diet, I gained about 10 pounds of muscle back. When I stopped running, I gained another 10 pounds of muscle back. And I got back to about 160. Then I lifted weights more. I got to maybe 165, 170, which is where I am now. But running chronic cardio is not the way to lose weight. Uh, lifting weights is a critical part or doing resistance exercise is a critical part of every human's health, both men and women. On July the 6th, I did a podcast with Evan Brand and we talked about mold toxicity. Evan is a great friend. It was fun to connect with him this year. We did a number of podcasts. We did a podcast about COVID that had a lot of banned stuff in it that I can't even talk about on here. I'll get this video, I'll get banned from YouTube, but it included uh, some banned drugs, which are clearly being um, silenced because of a focus on other uh, therapeutics, et cetera. So you guys understand what I'm talking about. But if you're interested in mold toxicity and you want to know about Evan's perspective on this, he's worked with a lot of people with mold. Uh, that is a great podcast to listen to. The keys to mold toxicity are understanding your source, uh, testing your home, removing the source, getting into a clean environment, understanding that things like uh, histamine intolerance and many other kind of mystery diagnoses could be related to mold exposures. Uh, if you're having a host of symptoms and you can't fix them, think about mold. Mold often gets poo-pooed. Um, to use a bad pun, in, in the health space. But I think there's a lot of people that can be sensitive to this and it is possible to heal from it, to avoid exposure and to change your environment and to detoxify uh, mostly with binders that are not super toxic. One of the concerns that I have is that cholestyramine, which is often used for uh, binding mold toxins, preventing enterohepatic recirculation, will prevent the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins and can lead to fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies. So we may want to think about other binders that are less toxic in the short term or at least in the beginning, such as uh, pectin or charcoal, chlorella even. Imagine that. But check out the podcast with Evan Brand on mold stuff. He's a good friend and a really great podcast. I mentioned the July 27th podcast with Michael Easter. We talked about landscapes of despair. Uh, one of the things I did not mention about that podcast was that many of these philosophical concerns probably are stemming from a fear of death. So um, do hard things. In the podcast with Michael Easter, we talked about misogy, which is a uh, an activity that you do throughout the year, a couple times a year, that you have a 50% chance of failing at. This is a very freaking hard activity that will challenge you and push your mind. It is a traditional thing in many cultures or uh, traditional cultures and is a valuable thing. I've done these type of things in the past. I've done Barbarian with my friend Liver King in the past. I definitely thought that I was going to fail, although I did complete it. It's probably about time for me to do another one of those, uh, though Liver King trains it almost every week. Uh, he's a beast and a good friend. So don't fear your death. Think about your death. Spend time reflecting on your death. I did a podcast uh, later this year also with Dan Engel talking about psychedelics. And you may have all heard me talk about psychedelics. I've had my own personal experiences with uh, psilocybin specifically in the future, um, may consider other psychedelics in the right context. But we talked about MDMA with Dan Engel and how it may change the future of psychotherapy for humans. I think it's a very valuable thing. But I will just say, this is not medical advice, but these psychedelic medications, whether we're talking about MDMA, which is not legal, or psilocybin, which is not legal, or DMT, and ayahuasca, which I don't even know what the legality of that is, um, or others, 
uh, will change the way your brain works and that will give you a new perspective on things and often helps you accelerate your self-knowledge. They are not a golden ticket. You must do the work. You must integrate. You must have a good surrounding environment around you. I do not believe in their use at festivals or partying. Uh, set and setting are critical with these things, but I think they are very valuable and they are a good way to confront your death in my opinion. So take that for what it's worth. Um, finally, the last point from the Michael Easter podcast that I wanted to highlight was the fact that Many times the people who are most against meat are the people who are most disconnected from nature. Uh, show me the vegan who spends time backpacking and I will show you the vegan who uh, often questions their veganhood or thinks a little bit about what would I do if I got stranded out here because many of these plants are not enough calories and I would die in the wilderness. So uh, if you guys can show me the vegan who backpacks, who spends time in the wilderness, I can likely show you a vegan who uh, is at least open or questioning the evolutionarily uh, consi the evolutionary consistency of their way of eating. Uh, again, I have no problems with vegans as humans. What I do rebel against is the notion that this is a healthy diet for humans, as I have talked about so, so many times. In August uh, of this year, I talked with Tucker Goodrich and his recent debate with Alan Flanagan. I've spoken about that podcast and many of those pieces much more in this podcast earlier. So please refer to that or check out the podcast with Tucker Goodrich. But if you want a deep dive into seed oils and why they are horrible for humans and many of the counter arguments to the arguments that are being made in favor of seed oils, listen to that podcast with Tucker Goodrich. One of the favorite solo podcasts that I did this year was Why the Egyptians Got Fat and Sick. There's a video on YouTube about that that has millions of views claiming that it was due to carbohydrates. I debate that, and I do not believe it was carbohydrates that made the ancient Egyptians fat and sick, though I don't think the wheat in their diet contributed to their health. What we do know very clearly, and what has been left out of so many of these appraisals of the ancient Egyptians' uh, apparent uh, decline into decrepitude and chronic illness and heart disease is that they were probably some of the first people to modernize or to... Um, widely use seed oils. So you can go back and listen to that controversial thoughts. That is the subheading for my monologue podcasts that I have done in the past on why the ancient Egyptians got fat and sick. But guess what? They had seed oils in their diet. So isn't that fascinating? So, so many good podcasts this year, guys. Those are the highlights. Um, hopefully that was interesting. If you guys hate it, I will never do it again. If you like it, I will do that again at the end of 2022. Who knows who I will have on the podcast this year or what topics will come up. One of the things that I conspicuously left out of this discussion was anything about COVID. Because look, Instagram, YouTube, all of these platforms are not playing nice on COVID. As I mentioned, if you want my uncensored thoughts, you can subscribe to the newsletter at heartandsoil.co to get those about COVID. I think everyone listening to this podcast knows where I stand on therapeutics for COVID, uh, early interventions, uh, potentials for where COVID came from, and you know, in general, my feeling about mandates, et cetera, masks, et cetera. So I don't need to go into detail about any of that on this podcast. I would prefer it for this one to be on YouTube. And I think that basically the more we talk about this now, um, it's just putting a target on all of our backs. That's not to say that I'm not willing to be somewhat brave and courageous, but already I've had my Instagram deleted and it is my intention now to mostly talk about nutrition. I think everyone knows where I stand on the COVID stuff. Um, and the main takeaway from COVID is why the heck has no one talked about metabolic health, vitamin D, et cetera, 
Finally, there is a chorus of voices here. I cheer Joe Rogan every time he talks about that. How do you become metabolically healthy? I talked about that at the beginning of this podcast. Every man, woman, child, dog, not really dogs. You don't need to check a fasting insulin on your dog or your cat, but you know what I mean. Should have a fasting insulin. You should know what it is. It should be less than five. I told you how to change it early in this podcast. That will decrease your risk of severe COVID. There's clear studies that show that. Go in the freaking sun and end of story, in my opinion, end of story. And let's hope that... Uh, that um, we, we find a way out of this soon and that we can all um, live lives that are unencumbered by censorship and uh, are more free for creativity and collaboration among humans. I'm not sure where that's going. The other part that I left out of this podcast was the cryptocurrency conversations. I think that these are fascinating to me and confusing to much of my audience who may not be familiar with this, but there were conversations with Safety and Amos and Robert Breedlove this year. If you like those conversations, please refer to those. Uh, I will say that uh, I believe that a part of our trajectory, our birthright, our responsibility as humans is protecting our tribe. And I have concerns about social credit scores and centralized currencies in the future. And I believe that many of well, specifically Bitcoin in general is a very legitimate answer to this. Not everyone agrees with me. That's fine. Uh, do what you think is best for you and your family financially. This is not financial advice. This is not medical advice. But whatever you do, uh, go in the sun, play with your family, dance on this day, do something fun, get uncomfortable, avoid seed oils, avoid processed sugars. Don't fear fruit in the food matrix. Eat some good honey. Uh, eat some raw dairy if you can. Jump in a river, preferably naked with someone you love, and get organs either fresh or desiccated along with well-raised meat from regenerative farms in your diet and thrive. And that is basically <laughs> a year of my podcast in um, two minutes. And this overall podcast is closer to uh, two hours, but I love you all. Uh, as I said, and during this podcast, check us out at heartandsoil.co for desiccated organs. We have lots of exciting stuff happening in 2022, a collaboration with George St. Pierre, which we hope will, which we know will allow us to really help many more people reclaim their birthright to radical health. There are so many amazing products and so many amazing organs you can get through heartandsoil.co and join us for the gathering, animalbasedgathering.com and stay tuned for what is happening with the Animal Based Nutrition Research Foundation, which is the nonprofit that I am building. Uh, with some friends and all those studies that we will be doing through that will be super exciting. So lots, lots in the works, guys, lots in the works and lots of exciting stuff happening in this year. Uh, I love you all. Stay radical. And yeah, that's it. We did it. That's 2021. Happy New Year to all. Sending much love everywhere.